We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Welcome to an extra special Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is me, Lean, from arsenalvision.co.uk. So why is this a special podcast, I hear you asking, from all the way over there? I will tell you. Number one, Arsenal won, again, which is always a good thing. Two, Tottenham lost. Three, Liverpool drew at home to West Brom, and uh, they embarrassed themselves in front of their crowd, which was great also. Manchester United also dropped some more points by losing to Bournemouth, so that was fun. And uh, there was one more thing that happened. Uh, what was it? What was it? That's it. Chelsea lost again. Ha ha ha. Jose Mourinho's crying somewhere, which is a great thing for everybody in this world, apart from Chelsea fans, which is even better. So, yeah, it's been a great weekend for us. Um, the one obviously downside was Man City fluking a late win, but don't worry about them. We'll, we'll have to dispatch them on Monday then. So, enjoy the podcast, and uh, we'll be back again after the Man City game. It should be fun. We're coming for you, we're coming for you, Barcelona, we're coming for you. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner if any of you are left that haven't yet done so. Uh, I am joined today by two particularly uh, ebullient, erudite, and excited Arsenal-supporting individuals, one of them fresh back from a triumphant trip to Villa Park. His name is Tim Stillman. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto, or read his stuff on Ars Blog and everywhere else. Hello, Tim. Howdy. Welcome back. Thank you. I say, I say welcome back. You're not actually back here where I am. You're back there where you are. So welcome yeah. back to where you are. <laughs> Thank you. You know, wherever you go, there you are. Um, and joining us is Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Poznan in my pants. Uh, you can also read his blogs periodically. Hello, Paul. <laughs> Welcome back. Thank you very much. I'm a potter and I'm yeah, a blogger. Yeah. I'm a picker, I'm a grinner. Yeah, a lover and a I'm fighter. A lover, anyway. And I'm a sinner. Anywho, um, so we're going to talk about uh, three different things and we're going to try to do it all within a span of time that is reasonable for the average human being. Um, and by that, I don't mean until the heat death of the universe. We're going to talk about Arsenal's triumphant uh, trip to Villa Park. We're going to talk about Arsenal's soon-to-be triumphant Champions League tie against Barcelona. And we're going to talk about Leicester City's triumph over Chelsea. And then sundry Premier League-related stuffs and transfer stuffs and things and stuff. Okay, enough of the professionalism. Let's get started. 
we'll start with you, Tim. It was uh, a return to the wing for uh, erstwhile winger Theo Walcott, mm. and it all worked out. But I think there was some question whether he would slot back into center forward, um, relegating Giroud to the bench, or whether he would start on the wing, or whether it would be Oxley chamberlain and Theo would just be the substitute striker. But in fact, it was Theo Walcott, Joel Campbell, and... Olivier Giroud, were you surprised to see that? And overall, what did you think of the decision to play Theo on, on the wing? Um, I wasn't surprised to see it. I thought the only question would be, is Theo Walcott fit enough? Because um, I think he kind of, not rushed him back, but I think he really, really wanted him for that Olympiacos game. Um, <clears throat> so I, I wasn't too surprised. I think it's just only a question of whether he's got the legs to do it at the moment. And the manager obviously decided that, yes, he has. Um and I, I, I think it worked quite well. I think I, I always had the suspicion that basically while Sanchez is out, um, he'll be prepared to play a player like Walcott on the wing because he carries goal threat. He's a bit like, you know, he replaces some of Sanchez's spark, shall we say. Um, not quite as well, but, um, you know, that's what you get when you're effectively making up for the loss of a player. You get somebody who's not quite as good um, at it. But, you know... Theo's a bit like Alexis. He's that kind of high-risk, high-reward type. Um, he's always quite dangerous. And, you know, when you actually look at his game, <clears throat> it's a very typical Theo game, actually. He he passed the ball nine times in the time he was on the pitch, yet he had a massive part in both goals, which is about as Theo as it gets. Um, he obviously he pushed up very, very high, um, which, you know, I, I believe to be instruction. Um, he played almost as a kind of, you know, more of a wide forward than a winger. Um, and actually, what was quite interesting, particularly in the first half, is Ramsey veered very, very much over towards the left-hand side. Um, and I think that was to provide Monreal with a little bit more protection than probably Theo was going to give him. Um, but at the same time, I think it made us quite open in the centre as well. Um, so, no, I, I wasn't surprised to see it at all. Um, I think it's working. Um, at the moment, I think that that front three is as balanced the front three as we can manage at the moment, um, particularly while we've got Alexis out. Um, so no, there, there were there were no surprises for me in both the fact that it was utilised and the fact that it, you know, it it worked pretty well. Mm -hmm. I I think it's it's certainly the best of not ideal options at the moment. It, exactly. Um, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, that's 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 a very good way of putting it. It's 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 the best of not a bad situation. That's that's over egging the pudding a bit, but it's 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 the best we can rustle up right now. It's um, yeah. it's the omelet of front threes, you know, just throw yeah. everything in and see what happens. I, I would say that if Joel Campbell hadn't lifted his game to a level we probably weren't sure he had, and if Olivier Giroud hadn't returned to form, we might not be as complimentary of that front three, but I think we're getting a little fortunate in that Olivier Giroud has picked a uh, very opportune time to rediscover some of his better form, and Joel Campbell is proving to be uh, a more capable player than maybe we would have anticipated, and that, that really is obviously a big help with all the options up front missing and Oxlade-Chamberlain really struggling to, to find his best form. We'll get to his cameo a little bit later if there's time but uh, Paul let me get to you and we'll start with the first goal because you are a uh, theophile so that that goal that he creates the penalty that he gets we know he can run past a player but it's the touch to take it down and it's the strength to get past the defender and, and the guile he shows and, and the run that's really did we see from Theo there really Theo 2.0, things that we wouldn't have seen from Theo 1.0, so to speak? Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's a few other ingredients in Theo 2.0. I mean, he went in for a shoulder charge with, with Hutton and came out at least on par. And speed-wise, you know, he was the guy who came out of it faster and got himself into the better, better position. And I think as well we saw at the end of his last run before injury, uh, whatever that was, just over a month ago, we saw him tracking back doing the defensive work, and he'd been talking about it for quite a bit over the last kind of six months while he was trying to get played in the Arsenal team. 
um, where he was either just talking about it or he was talking about it and working on it. Now, I do think the defensive stuff is the last piece that slots into place for Theo. First, he comes back, he makes his runs, uh, he contributes, he scores some goals, and then when he's kind of settled in and he feels he's kind of establishing himself, he expands his game a little bit more. I think the defensive piece, uh, off a short sample, um, is probably the last piece where, I mean, he's never going to be great, but, you know, if in most games he's half decent, we'll probably take that because of his upside. But, I mean, he did great on the generating the penalty. Flamini did very well. I think we have a Flamini issue uh, in the sub in in our supporter base. There's kind of a myopia that if he does anything good attacking, it's, oh, my God, Flamini's done something attacking. He's left us wide open. Even if he does it front, even if his decision making was good, he took the right option. You know, if he ever ends up in the box, even though it made sense in that play, and even if Ramsey dra dropped back to cover him, it's, oh my God, that mad bastard Flamini's in the box. So, I think we're just all a little nervous at the moment. But nice little pa um, lob that I don't know if Flamini hit it perfectly. I think he was actually trying to get it over Hutton, but he got it to Theo's foot. Beautiful first-time control, which takes him past Hutton. Um, and then there's the whole penalty decision, which I think is quite fun, and I have a little bit of a hot take on it, which is if it was left to the referee, I mean, r obviously if it was left to the referee, he doesn't give it. But I think even if he'd seen what the linesman had seen, I still don't think he gives it in the same way referees don't give the first yellow card or big crunching tackle of the game because... It was a little marginal, even if a valid penalty. So I think we're bloody lucky. You l it was l it was a linesman who called it in that the referee couldn't ignore. You know, he had a linesman in his in his ear shouting, "Penalty! I saw it. It's a penalty." And I think if 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 had been the ref who had seen everything linesman saw, he kind of would have let it slide and we would have been in trouble, but he was kind of called out by his own linesman. That's that's a little pop psychology, but I think that was the beauty of it being a linesman's call. Yeah, and I don't think it hurts that Giroud's coming off a hat trick, stepping up to the penalty spot where you need to have confidence, and he puts it away. He looked very um, confident taking that. You know what's funny? I, he looked really confident taking it, and if you look at the penalty really, really carefully, mm. um, it's all great work. I don't know if he used the the goalkeeper first technique or strategy, you know, where he, he reads the goalkeeper. Yeah. But I think he did because the funny thing is the penalty, if the keeper dives that way, it's an easy save. It's fairly close to the middle. I mean, struck firmly, but it's a pretty easy save. But I think he, he gave him the eyes and, and let him go first. I, I, so I put he some thought into did. this, and here's my mm -hmm. other mm -hmm. pet theory, which is because I wondered and worried about that. If Guzan had gone the other way, Giroud was kind of screwed. But what you see is, from a certain angle from behind, Giroud really goes to place it left and then swings that leg around viciously to pull it the other side. Yep. And when yeah. you watch Guzan, he doesn't just go to the right. He goes all the way right and slides past the post with his momentum. So I think Giroud doesn't bother trying to read the keeper. He just puts it so he swings it so viciously viciously back the other way in terms of his leg that he compl decides to completely commit the keeper that would be my read on it i i, mean, I think that definitely as well where, where we were positioned we were kind of side on but behind it he definitely definitely faints with his body the other thing to say is every single Giroud penalty for arsenal has gone to the mm. goalkeeper's right um, and Guzan will have known that. And so when he was stepping up, I, I said to, uh, to my friend, I said, I hope he goes left because, you know, I think he's taken three penalties for Arsenal and they've all been the same. Um, and I, I thought, I, I hope he shows a bit of variety here. And I think it was almost like, I, I don't know, double or triple kidology kind of, well, the goalkeeper probably definitely thinks I'm going to go that way. So if I give him the eyes that I'm going to go that way, then that'll be his mind made up. And, and you know, I, I, it was... Like you say, it wasn't right in the corner, but I don't think it needed to be because I think Giroud kind of kidded him out of it. Well, and and I'll add to the, the pop psychology here, armchair psychology, in that I think if he hadn't taken a penalty midweek, he might have opted to go back to his side that he prefers. But having just struck one to the keeper's right on Wednesday, I think he was reluctant to strike it to the keeper's right again a few days later, if that makes sense. Um, 
anyway, we could probably go on and on trying to figure out what's in Giroud's head. I think we should. Yeah. Well, then we could go back in time and tell him not to sleep with that prostitute before Bayern Munich. Um, Okay. So I'll ask you each this question comes from Twitter and it comes from Fred Thurbin or Turbin Thurbin. Well, here he's RLF 86 at Twitter. How about that? That's block him. Block Elliot. Sorry. Well, everybody blocks me. That's I instruct people to block me. Although if they block me, then they, they can't give me questions. So it's uh catch 22, as they say, Tim, who are our front three? Asks Fred. Actually, he said, how are our front three? But I think he meant who when Alexis is fit. And I'm going to throw in a curveball, and then he goes on the list, Giroud or Theo at striker, Campbell, Theo, Ox, right, mid, uh, right wing, Alexis, right wing. To, anyway, he lists all the, all the theories. Um, I'm going to go out a step further. I'll say, who do you think is our front three when Alexis is fit? And then who do you think is our front three when Alexis and Welbeck are fit, if that were to ever come to pass? Um, I would still have a preference for um, Alexis on the left, they are up front, and I'd keep Joel on the right at the moment just because I think that balances things. Um, I, I think at the moment, just with our existing options, Joel Campbell's the only player of his sort, um, and we don't have enough kind of controlling players um, at the moment, and he kind of fits that bill. Um, so I, I definitely keep him. And for me, just the tandem between Alexis and Theo is, is electric, um, and I think we should try and use it every available opportunity. Um, Giroud's been in terrific form. I, I think we know exactly what to expect from Olivier Giroud now, which is five good games, five indifferent games. Um, <clears throat> you know, sometimes his, his limitations are exposed, and I listened to the pod after the Olympiakos game completely agree that there are some games when he just doesn't have those runners around him. It's too easy to pin. Um, but he's, he's a great option coming off the bench. Um, I think... Theo and Alexis kind of almost as a front two. Um, I think that's got a lot of legs in it yet um, in more ways than one. Um, and I'm really excited to see that develop. So at the moment, that would be my de facto with Giroud as, you know, a, a very good option from the bench. <laughs> when Welbeck comes back, um, if he ever comes back. Alexis, Theo, Danny? <sighs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yes, wow. please. Yes, please. Yeah, I, I think that's got um, a little bit of everything. And the good thing about Welbeck as well, I mean, he, he matches more than matches, you know, Campbell in terms of work rate and, you know, that Pressing, security. he's great pressing. Yeah, and he doesn't give the ball away, but he's also got a bit of physical presence about him, which perhaps you lose if you get rid of Giroud and put Theo up front. But then again, Alexis is very good at making up for that um, by helping out. Theo in that respect, but I, you know, I, I think that really Welbeck, um, Theo and, uh, and Alexis would be a, a really formidable front three, um, not least because all three of them can play in all three positions um, in that front three, and I think that's, you know, there's a, there's a lot of potential in that. Yeah, I think we're of the same mind there. How about you, Paul? Have a shot at it with Alexis back and a shot at it with Alexis and uh, Welbeck back. So, quick question. Is this what I think we'll do or what I would do? Uh, no, what what you would do. I think, I mean, okay, well, we probably I could thought, go into yeah. what we think Arsenal will do, but I want to know what you would prefer to see. All right, well, I'd take Tim's. Uh, Tim has my uh, my juices flowing. I think Arsenal would put Giroud up front, but my preference would be along the lines of Tim. I think that would be beyond exciting. Um, and... The only question is the midfield to give that some security. Okay. Deftly handled. Thank you. <laughs> um, so then I'll stay with you. Uh, let's talk midfield for a minute. Yeah. There's been a lot of discussion about Ramsey or Santi Cazorla in midfield, and I think this is this is what drives me nuts about debating anything at Arsenal is that any compliment of one is a criticism of the other, any criticism – of one is a compliment of the other, and so on and so forth. Santi Cazorla has been absolutely magnificent, magnificent for Arsenal, um, as as good as anyone during his time there. And what he adds to our midfield is is something that we miss terribly when he's not there. But by the same token, putting Ramsey in midfield adds a totally different dynamic. The question is whether Flamini can pair with him effectively, does pair with him effectively, and and whether it's in the best interest 
of the team and the way we play to have Ramsey and Flamini together. So in the Villa game in particular, what did you think, Paul, of the way Ramsey and Flamini combined? And then just generally, how do you feel about them as a pairing? Because with Coughlin out still for several months, um, and Cazorla even further, this looks like the pairing, barring a, a, a purchase in January. Yeah, I, I think it's a really good pairing up to a point. I think for, you know, eight out of ten cats, uh, Ramsey and Flamini uh, will be good enough. And I, I thought Flamini in particular from a midfield cover standpoint, I mean, he's the grown-up. Ramsey's kind of like uh, the lad in his in his late twenties, who's just left college, he's got a job. He's got he's got like the he's just bought his first car. He's got you know he's wearing suits now, and he feels like the grown up with the job. But he's still kind of running around with his mates and kind of living the life. And so he's very very Ramsey's very very attacking. Um, the the other thing I notice, uh, and it came through on the our counter attacking goal, is his style of tack- tackling even in midfield is very risk-reward. He does that near-side tackle with his leg uh, rather than swinging the, the far leg, which is the one that dislodged the ball in midfield and started the counter-attack. And it means he always takes the man to get to the ball. And that gives away free kicks too, which puts us under a lot of pressure. So, you know, it, it's just one more factor of the fact that in midfield, he spills the ball more than uh, Cazorla does. Uh, you don't have possession between Flamini and, um, and... It's not as controlled. It's, not as, it's controlled. not as controlling. Yeah, It's mm-hmm. not as smooth. They don't stroke it. It's more dynamic. Uh, it's higher risk-reward, and I think that pays off except against the very best teams. But this league may well be won by those who extract the most three points from you know, the 80% who aren't City and... You know, you would have said yeah, no, United, I, but not United. And we've already played the other the other guys, Leicester, and you know Chelsea will be Chelsea against us. And maybe in that one or two games, we just we play much more conservatively and hit them on the counter. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's a midfield. Uh, I mean, I really hope we do something in January, but it's a midfield that may actually be almost good enough to win this league if we're really smart about it judicious about this league about when we expose it yeah this league yeah. yes absolutely i agree with you um you know my, my theory on this is twofold one i said on a previous podcast and i stand by this i still don't think they have it down yet when one sits and when one runs because ramsey likes to run and run farther up the pitch and he's he's just a lot more mobile than Cazorla in general um and as a result that's going to expose flamini more flamini doesn't have a good feel for when to sit and when to go himself. Um, I still think they need to work out their partnership. But I think when I look at what we have in Cazorla and Ramsey, they both do tremendous things for the midfield, but in different ways. I think Ramsey is better than Cazorla 30 yards from our goal and in, as in just purely defensively, and 30 yards from the opposition goal and in, as in purely from an attacking and goal-scoring threat standpoint. I think between those lines in the exact middle of the pitch, Santi Cazorla is just much, much, much better. Better in the transition, better breaking the press, better in control, fewer turnovers, better with the short passing. Um, just so much healthier for us against teams that are going to press us. I really worry um, how we handle teams that press us and can be aggressively pressure-oriented and ball-oriented in midfield Um with a, with a Ramsey-Flamini partnership. So, Tim, I'll ask you, and I'll, I'll frame it in the form of Cl- Clive's question on Twitter, uh, at ClivePAFC. Um, he says, is Ramsey the answer in central midfield or the problem waiting to hurt us? How do we resolve the elephant in the room? Uh, is the elephant Ramsey? Is the elephant Flamini? Or is the elephant that Flamini is not the right partner for Ramsey? Um, I think it's all and none of those things at the same time. I think... Um... That's, that's very um, <laughs> Schrodinger's cat (laughs) i think um uh, you know i paul and i had a discussion after the sunderland game um about what the midfield would look like and i said that i think it was after the sunderland game i said that i thought arsenal would be basketball um for the next couple of months that there's not a lot of control in there but 
Um, there's a lot of you know front foot players, and you saw that the upside of that was the second goal completely encapsulates it. You know, um, with daring, win the ball back on the edge of the and and the second goal is the encapsulation of everything Ramsey gives you. Um, you know, wins the ball back on the edge of his own area, and then all of a sudden we've got like four players who want nothing more than to just get on the edge of that box. Um, and actually, what was a little bit weird was that it was Walcott passing to Ozil when maybe you'd expect it to be the other way around. But it was a hell of a pass. It, it was, yeah. And and effectively, we had four players there, kind of just absolutely going hell for leather to get to the edge of uh, Villa's penalty area, and that's that's the kind of upside of it. Um, I think the downside of it we saw a bit in the second half um, where I thought we were really, really open. And I don't know, and Monday will be the big, big litmus test for this. I don't know if that's just the natural way of things or whether they were just a bit tired or whether their focus dropped because they were 2-0 up or whether it was just a conscious decision that, you know what, this is Aston Villa and even if we're a bit open, we're going to have too much for them. And um, I thought we were quite open against Olympiakos as well in in that kind of centre circle in the middle. Um, and, you know, gradually we brought the game under control, largely because Olympiakos, you know, we just killed their momentum um, by scoring goals effectively. And I think, I, I tend to think the manager's got in his mind, let's just kill them with goals because we can't kill them with possession or taking control of the game. So, you know, for games like Villa and Olympiakos, it's, you know, let's just go and outscore them because those that's what our strength is at the moment. Um, I think I think you're right about Flamini and Ramsey. They've not quite worked things out yet. There were lots of times in that second half, and again, I was kind of in the upper tier, where moves broke down on the edge of the Villa box, and I just saw Flamini kind of waving frantically, as if to say, where the fuck are you all? <laughs> <laughs> And and the thing is about Flamini at the moment as well is that he he just doesn't quite have the athleticism that like Coquelin does. So actually, Flamini usually is in position. I totally agree with Paul that um, it's totally overstated this kind of him flying forward and stuff. I don't think he does. I think the problem is he he's very disciplined. I think the problem is he doesn't quite trust his athleticism. So he's more of a he likes to try and shepherd people, but he doesn't really like to go for the ball in those 50-50s because, you know, he's in his 30s now. Maybe five years ago, he'd just go headlong into into the 50-50 and try and nick the ball in the way that Coquelin does so quickly and so impressively. And that's kind of a problem as well in that, you know, Flamini's positioning is fine, but he's just not quite as athletic as he used to be. Um, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know... I think with Flamini, and this is, so here's what kind of drives me nuts, you guys, just to vent for one second, is like, there is this feeling that if if a player is playing for Arsenal, he he must be really good and we all have to praise him or, you know, we have to be critical of him. And I think you can look at Flamini and say, at this stage in his career, with his limitations physically and technically, he's doing a decent job. He's holding it yeah. together. I mean, against lesser sides, I think he's going to be fine. Yeah. Against sides that press us or have real pace, um, through the midfield and in counterattacking, I think he's going to be a little bit exposed. Um, there were a couple times both he and Ramsey, I thought, against Villa and against Olympiacos, were diving into crazy challenges. There was not a lot of discipline in their tackling. And for all of Coughlin's and Cazorla's, well, Coughlin's physicality and energy in the tackle, he's actually pretty disciplined about the way he tackles. Mm. And, you know, I think Flamini and Ramsey just aren't great tacklers. I really don't think they are. Technically, they're not. I mean, Ramsey went into one crazy challenge, um, and Flamini had a couple others. So, you know, I I think we can look at Flamini and say he's passable, but here's the interesting thing. You know, the same people that are saying, oh, you know, do you regret what you said about Joel Campbell or what you say about Flamini? Look at how well they're doing. Are people who would have told you in the summer the only players that could have improved us are world-class players? Well, no. Incremental improvement on Flamini and Campbell would mean we'd be in a better position right now. And um, we're, we're yeah, going to have to do that in January anyway because we, well, we, we haven't got a choice um, um, now. So, you know, Adrian Rabio on loan from PSG is mm. is probably looking like a, a pretty decent choice just because he's, you know, a Ooh. bit of an upgrade on what we've got. The, the thing I'd Here, add on... Here's the thing. Go ahead. Go on, ahead. On um, Ramsey's tackling as well because you both brought it up. The other, the other reason Ramsey tackles in the way he does is because he's, he's totally focused on attack. 
and it's really, really good when it comes off because the way he tackles means he keeps the ball at his feet. So he doesn't mm-hmm. just wallop the ball out of play or, you know, yeah. send it 10 yards forward. He, when he wins it, it mean, he tackles in such a way that it stays at his feet and he comes away with the ball. And again, it's very high risk, high reward because sometimes it doesn't come off and it kind of looks like he's pulled out of the challenge and he hasn't. It's just he's trying to keep the ball under his spell. Well, look at the second goal. I mean, some referees call that a foul and yep. then you're in a very dangerous free kick position. This referee did not call it a foul and it led to a goal that Ramsey himself scored. Um, well, you, you brought it up, so let's get to it. And Paul, I'll let you have the first shot at it since Tim already took a nibble. The Villa game was, was relatively routine, I thought. They were pretty terrible or very, very terrible. So we can move past it. I think we sort of covered it. And there's so much more interesting stuff to talk about. So we're nearing, we're nudging, we're edging towards January. And, and this, this is really the thing, right? If in the summer I had said we should sign Riyad Mahrez and, and Victor Wanyama, everyone would have said, you're an idiot. And maybe I'm still an idiot. But Wanyama is better than Flamini and Mahrez is better than Joel Campbell, right? I mean, so, you know, again, it's incremental improvement. But, and, and we got an interesting question on Twitter. So I'll, I'll phrase it in the form of this and then you can expand to the DM issue. But David at uh, Dr. Uleb or D-R-U-L-L-E-B, Druleb, um, says, let's assume we sign one player in January but not a defensive midfielder. What position should it be? Paul, is that even possible? And what do you, th- what do you think we would do then when we'll do? Wow. Um, uh, I mean, I get the... the re- really, it's a midfielder we need when you look at the players coming back. Um, I guess I, I can't. I could see the logic for if some real talent came up in the front line, a goal scorer, a another striker, an upgrade on Theo as a as, and Giroud as a striker, if somebody like that were available. But outside of that, um, I can't see why somebody who isn't playing in central midfield. Uh, a very versatile player who's smart and provides cover, uh, uh, I would think that's going to be, you know, 90% of where we put our eggs uh, in January. I, can't, I yeah. just can't imagine it. Um, do, do you want to throw out names? I mean, I, I'm not great at that, but do you have any any names? I mean, we, we heard Rabio's name thrown out there. I, I'm not as great at those names, and to be honest, I kind of switch off from it because – because 99 times out of 100, whoever you think about ain't coming. I mean, Rabio from the little I know about him, would make a lot of sense. Wanyama would make a lot of sense, but I can't imagine why they'd sell him, nor could I imagine why uh, Leicester would have sold Mares in the summer, even if you throw a lot of money at them. If it's, if it's a key player for them, staying and thriving in the Premier League is such a big deal. That I could they ain't selling anyone now, my friend. Because yeah. if they can get into the Champions League, it's worth a hell of a lot more than than any player they're gonna, any money they're going to get for a player. Yeah, and I just think it's very hard to get anybody out of the Premier League who's good, because there's so much. Mu- the, you know, the game in the Premier League is you've got to stay in it, um, and even if you think you might drift out, if you think you've even the smell of staying in it, you've got to go for it. So, you know, it, it's that's a. 30 or 40 million pound decision for you. So you, nobody's going to give up a key player. So it's got to come from abroad, typically. Rabio makes sense because he's mostly sitting on the bench, as I understand it. Um, or somebody like, uh, you know, when we got we talked about this before, Monreal, a Monreal or a Gabriel out of Spain, but they take a little while to uh, uh, um, acclimate, as they both did. And, uh, uh, you know, it took Monreal really a couple of seasons to become the the real deal, though he, he was pretty good when he arrived, it must be said. He did have a good kind of first half of the season for us. Um, well, so how about this? I mean, l- let's look at it this way, Tim. I mean, if we assume that the job, the central midfield position is maybe Ramsey's again and maybe Ramsey's again permanently, if you take the position that maybe Cazorla might be heading back to Spain soon, you know, it might be hard to get him right back into the side after a knee operation that he's getting a little older, that maybe he wants to go back to Spain, that Ramsey wants to be in central midfield, and it might be best for everyone if he gets that position back. 
Would the signing maybe need to be someone who's more of a Ramsey-type partner, like a fitter, more athletic Arteta-type, someone who could play with Coughlin in a more defensive setup, but play with Ramsey as well? Um, maybe someone like a Key uh, at Swansea. I mean, is is that the kind of player that maybe we need instead of just Coughlin version two? Yeah, definitely. I think so because you know that that's why I doubt the kind of Wanyama links um, <clears throat> quite a lot, as, as well as the fact that I'm not hugely sold on his on his quality. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I, in terms of Kazola, I think Kazola is one of those players who's going to be able to play at the top level till he's 35 or 36. Um, well, because pace and power isn't really exactly. – you know, the physicality isn't part of it. It's all about the touch of those beautiful feet. Exactly, and that that's, you know, uh, Andrea Perlo is, is the most obvious kind of example there. Um, of the kind but of but don't you think – I mean, Ramsey really wants to be central definitely. mid. He is, he is the future of that position for us. Ram, there's been some noises that Cazorla misses Spain. I mean, it, doesn't 2 plus 2 maybe equal moving yeah, Santi on? and, and – and look, at the end of the day, you know, Ramsey's, what, 23, 24? Um, you know, he's he's going to want to play in central midfield at one point, at some point. And, and, you know, he's fantastic there. He's really fantastic there. Um, and I, I do think it's about buying him a partner in the short term and quite possibly the long term as well. I'm, um, I'm actually very, I'm very, very sure that we're going to buy in that position in January. I just think, He's been looking in that position for a couple of years. He bid for Lars Bender two and a half years ago, so that's how long he's been looking. Um, I just don't think he's really pulled the trigger on people he's not 100% on. Um, you know, uh, without going into the whys and wherefores of this, I think if you tell him in June that Coughlin's going to be out for four months, I think maybe he pulls the trigger on Schneiderlin um, yeah. rather than yeah, waiting cool. for the kind of the porridge, as it were, the kind of this one's just right. So they, you know, and they've got Arteta and Flamini's contracts are running out at the end of the season, um, and so it, you know, it, they must have been scouting people, and they've just decided, you know, uh, couldn't quite get this player, not quite sure about this one. Oh, Cochrane's doing quite well now, and he might have passed up on a couple of targets, or just kept, you know, kept things ticking over on this kind of scouting. Now it's very much a kind of, we kind of have to. And I think that whoever he's had his eye on, he'll be going for. Um, and he, he has got form for this. I don't think he ever wanted Andre Arshavin. I do not think that Wenger was fully sold on Andre Arshavin. Um, and he said as much six months before he bought him. But Interesting. it was just, Cesc Fabregas got injured. We were in a ter- terrible position in the league. And he knew he could get him. And so he just did it. Same with Danny Welbeck. Don't think he was ever. Compl- I don't think Danny Welbeck was a dream signing by any means. But Olivier Giroud got injured. We only had Sonogo up front. He had to do it. Mon- you know, Nacho Monreal. He did want, but he brought that signing forward out of necessity. Same with Per Mertesacker. Um, Arteta. Arteta. William Gallas. I don't think he really. I, I think he liked and rated Gallas as a defender. I don't think it was really what we needed. But, this is the long way round of saying we're getting someone in January, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, ju- <laughs> I, I just think that they'll, they'll have had some targets under the radar, possibly, for the last year or so. And I think he'll try and... I think basically he'll part, try and pull the trigger on a few. And I think that possibly Adrian Rabio is the is the kind of the nuclear option because, you know, about a week after Coquelin got injured, Adrian Rabio came out in the press and said, I'd like to go on loan in January. Who says they want to go on loan in January, you know? Um, that, That's not really Arsene Wenger's favorite or or preferred way of doing it, though. Is, I mean, no. he, I know he did it with Yossi Benayoun and, and there's some previous It might be it. a marriage of great convenience because Rabiot exactly. wants to play in the Euros and he's sitting yeah. on the bench. And he knows he'll play. But, but is, go ahead. He'll definitely play. And again, he's another one who I think if we really wanted to sign him, it, I, I have the impression we could have done it at any point in the last kind of 18 months. but So it becomes an audition of sorts? Yeah, a loan might be perfect. If he does really, really well, then maybe we can buy him. If he doesn't, he served the purpose for a couple of months. Thank you very much and goodbye kind of thing. It serves him. And we purpose. can complain about the players we didn't buy instead. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, and he gets his kind of audition for the Euros and, and, and mm-hmm. whatever. And I, I think that, you know, my my 
completely uninformed hunch is that they've got a few things cooking under the radar and that they'll pull the trigger perhaps or try and pull the trigger on that one if nothing else comes off. Okay. I, I Look, I, I think with all due respect to Matthew Flamini, who I actually think has, has been okay, yeah. I do think we look a little too open. I think in the big games it's going to be a challenge. I'm a little nervous about that with City where you could have – Sterling and De Bruyne are running at you, and I don't know if Aguero will be fit for that game, but I assume he will because it's us. And, you know, they, they we're going to have to be really careful, especially with as much as Ramsey likes to go, Flamini's really going to have to sit. Um, Paul, let's get to the big news from Monday. Um, the Champions League draw was held. I should say the formality of the Champions League draw was held because – we knew we were getting Barca, but I guess they had to pull the name out of the hat. And we got Barca. So, you know, I look at it, and in another world, we get Zenit, beat Zenit, and then get the winner of Ghent and Wolfsburg, beat them, and suddenly we're in the semifinal. Um, instead, we're getting the team that will likely win the Champions League. Um, does this take any of the excitement of getting through against Olympiacos out of it for you? And, and what are your feelings about John Barca? Well... You know, as a seasoned professional supporter, I believe in maximizing the enjoyment at each stage and not looking too far ahead. So, no, I, I'm going to continue to enjoy the snot out of qualifying against Olympiacos. And I think it was really important, and I think we we probably all concur on why those reasons were. The short version being, yeah, I agree. you know, psychology, mentality, it's part of our DNA. We qualify for shit. You know, that's a big piece of, of the backbone of this team that when the going gets tough they will come up with the good so i think it was really important to a point to a point to to a point well (laughs) i'd even argue the to a point i think they've performed to their level they haven't always performed above their level we're getting better we're winning cups the next thing to win is the premier league and we look a lot more like winning it this year than before so you know we're moving up the notches of course we could slip down but in my um my positive view of where we're going, there is an arc here, and people who want to always look back from a, a, a negative standpoint, um, okay, but that, that's not where I'm going with this. I, I see a movie script in which we continually progress um, with this squad. So that's, that's what I got my fingers crossed for. Uh, it also means we're a Champions League team right into uh, February with the excitement of playing Barcelona. I think it's all good. Now, it makes me sick that we're playing Barcelona. I think, uh, as I tweeted earlier, the, the footballing gods have decreed that seeing as they gave us Monaco and we fucked it up, that we shall forever, like Sisyphus, play Barcelona or Bayern Munich in the next round. Yeah, we got them, we got them both this year. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just th- – yeah, good point. Thank you very much, footballing gods. But – yeah, yeah, you know, uh, I th- I don't think it's an issue till February, but it's a bit of a sickener from a Champions League standpoint. On the other hand, did we have the legs to go deep in each com- in each competition? Uh, I don't think so, but maybe we'd have the players coming back at that point anyway. So, I guess you could argue that in any e- either way you like. But it's a sickener. Uh, but it's not a problem till February, at which stage the Premier League should well and truly be on, and we can always distract ourselves with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's interesting, just going backwards really quickly, the one thing that I will say that I think is a check in, in our favor in terms of Arsenal going into the market in January, and I, I meant to mention this, so I just want to mention it quickly. Two seasons ago, we were the leaders of the Premier League for the most days of any team, and... Everybody looks back and says injuries derailed our season. You, you remember two two seasons ago we were we were leading the Premier League. Yes, uh, it, was, it was great. Um, and Arson didn't really push the boat out in January, and we really weren't able to recover. And that's when we took the heavy losses at Liverpool, at Chelsea, um, against City in January the six three, the Everton three nil, and and obviously it just came off the rails. I I think the manager may look at it this time and say, you know what, I'm not letting this happen again. We're in the catbird seat again. I'm going to strengthen. I'm going to. I'm going to make sure that we have what it takes to finish the job. So, I do lean that direction. Tim, the, the only thing um, I would say quickly, yeah. Elliot, is there's a to me. Maybe this is just subjective, but to me there is a quantitative difference between us now and then. And at the time, I didn't think we were going to win the Premier League. I didn't think we were good enough. I wasn't going around shouting that to everybody. Uh, but when we were leading the league, 
I didn't feel it was going to last. And I doubt the manager feels, I'm not saying he saw no chance. I'm saying there's a, qu a quantitative and qualitative difference right now in, in terms of this team where I think we can, should win this league. I'm convinced the manager thinks it. So uh, I don't think it's just he learned from two years ago. I think this is a different situation. We had a lot of easy fixtures going into a period where we were then dominant in the league. Or sorry, fo uh, ahead in the league. But we weren't mm -hmm. by any means the best footballing team in that league that year. We went, what, eight points clear yep. around Christmas time? I mean... You can win the league from that position, and that was not a good City team that won it that season and scraped it, really. That was when Liverpool, for fuck's sake, they went close with three decent months. Um, I, I just think if you're leading the league by eight points in December, or r roughly thereabouts, you have to, you know, and you're not, you know, a, a small club, you have to at least consider you have a chance. And injuries really shredded our season that year, but... And fixtures. You know, we, did, we hadn't played the big boys. Yeah. No, no, no. I agree. I, well, yeah, I agree. We hadn't played them away, certainly. We had to go to City. We had to go to Liverpool. We had to go to Chelsea. Anyway, that's old news. I just, I do think that the manager will look at this situation and see maybe, to your point, our chance is even better than it was then. The league is even weaker at the top than it was then. And I think if we for, just I add a little bit. I think we're for real this year. Line. And I, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't think the manager would have seen the same in his squad at that time as he sees now. I guess, but you know what, Paul? The only And I don't want to start an argument over this, but then shame on. on him. Like, at no point should the manager of Arsenal Football Club with an eight-point lead over the, the chasing pack look at his team and say, you know what, it's a little too soon for us. We're not ready, so I'm not going to take any steps to try to ensure we win the league. If you're Arsenal and you're eight points not clear at the top of I December. Said, no, 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 I, I get it. I'm, putting, I'm, I'm just saying from my perspective – you're right. The, the team is stronger now than it was then. But we're one piece um, away from having a bona fide, uh, title-winning. Nobody could argue with quality in every spot on on that team and some depth kind of team. Okay. Well, uh, Tim, let's let's stay on Barcelona for a second. So, do you think this is helpful? It's bad. It's damaging. I mean, I think losing to Monaco in the Champions League in the round of 16 is psychologically very damaging. Losing to Barcelona in the round of 16 wouldn't be particularly psychologically damaging because they're probably going to go on and win it anyway, um, unless you lose 7-0 on aggregate or something. What do you expect from the tie? And, and what, do you think, what do you think of getting drawn with Barca? Bad? Okay? I mean, if we do get knocked out, it certainly eases up our fixture congestion towards the back half of the season, and I don't think anybody's going to cry too much over losing to the best team in the world. Yeah, there is that element to it, but it's easy to compartmentalise. And then there's, you know, there's the kind of, if you want to win it, you're probably going to have to beat Barcelona anyway. Um, and if you're not... I'd rather do it in a one-off. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if you can't do that, it's probably better to find out a little bit earlier and, you know, Fair point. just kind of get on with the league. And, and you know, but look, at the end of the day, I, I was making an argument that if we were in the Europa League, we should... We should take it seriously and the rest of it um, and go and try and win it. So, you know, I'm, I'm not all on getting knocked out of the Champions League early. Um, I, I've got really mixed feelings on it. Um, my, my first reaction to any draw, and um, a lot of people misunderstand this when I react in real time on kind of social media, my, my immediate reaction is always, um, how good is the trip? Have I been to the ground before? That's just like, that's just how I think of it. Um, particularly in the Champions League, which I think is a competition we have less and less chance of winning almost year on year because actually, you know, from a neutral perspective, I find the competition completely dull. I think it's completely losing its appeal. Really? You look at the draw today, I think um, I think Miguel Delaney tweeted something about this. Something like five of the eight ties have happened at least three times before. And it's just becoming so dull and so repetitive and... I think six or seven of those ties you could call very, very easily um, already, and I, I think that's I think that's a really poor state um, for the competition to be in. Whether other people feel that way, whether there's enough, you know, in that for other people to lose interest, um, I'm not sure. I think a lot of people like watching Barca and Bayern wallop everyone five nil, which which is absolutely fine. It's it's not for me personally. 
Um, well, and yet we've had Juve in a final and, and Dortmund yeah. in a final and Atletico Madrid in a you final. You get one of those teams every it. year. Um, basically, yeah. if Barca and Bayern stay apart, um, you know, yeah, you get you get a team like that every year. Um, they're usually the losing finalists, um, which, which again says a lot. And you know, no, I think nobody's won it from outside of England, Germany, or Spain since two thousand and four. I think it's becoming an incredibly dry tournament. I really do. But that's that's like from my neutral perspective and not from my Arsenal perspective, you know. Um, but like how many how many teams have won the World Cup? You know, I mean, how many nations have won the World Cup? Like it's not that many. And yet like no, people but it still love the World Cup. No, but it happens every four years. The Champions League happens every year. And it's, True. It, it's becoming... There you go with that logic again. <laughs> it's becoming very, very pronounced. I think it's becoming very dry. Um, personally... When the Champions League is on, like I, you know, I'm always at the games, so I never get to see any of the other goals or anything like that. I make no attempt to look for them. I make no attempt to watch any highlights. I barely even look at the results in other groups. I'm just not interested in it as a competition, personally, just because I like, like I love the Premier League this year. I think it's the best it's ever been. I think whoever wins it is going to be the worst champions possibly in Premier League history. But I don't care. I think that's great. Because um, I, I I prize kind of unpredictability and that's really unfair to Leicester, but <laughs> and I just don't think you get that in the Champions League until like the semi final now. Um, but anyway, I, I guess I could go. I, all I was going to say real quick is I guess all I can judge by is like how I feel. And when the knockout rounds start and that Champions League anthem plays and it's the first leg yeah. of the of the of the knockout round, like. The butterflies you get in your stomach are unique. You know, I, I mean, I care about every Premier League game, but it's just something psychologically a little different about those European I agree, leagues. and I, I, I love that Arsenal are in it. Um, don't get me wrong. Like I'm, I'm absolutely not blasé about our participation in it at any point. Um, and I love those trips and everything. And, and, you know, like, I've been to the New Camp a couple of times, been to Barcelona a couple of times. It's a wonderful city. It's, it's not a great stadium, um, to be honest. It's, um, it's a bit run down. It looks like a car park. And no Emirates. <laughs> It's, it's actually quite a poor stadium, um, which not a lot of people realise until they go there. It's a bit drab. But anyway, it's, you know, th that's like the most first world of first world problems in the world. I wanted Zenit because I've never been to St. Petersburg and blah, blah, blah. But from, from a purely kind of football Arsenal perspective, rather than my own kind of selfish desires, um, you know, on one hand, I think we can compartmentalise any loss that's probably going to happen. Although the last time we played them, it was it was actually pretty close. There were some fine details, and our team's much better um, now than it was then. So I don't think it's an absolutely foregone conclusion. Um, Barcelona would have been very confident about whoever they were going to draw, but I would wager they wanted us less than anybody of the teams they could have got. Um, and I think we can respond to that quite positively. We've got a good record against them at the Emirates. They've not managed to beat us there. Um, they're terrified of Theo Walcott, um, presuming he's fit. Um, they're absolutely terrified of him. Um, It'd be a great story for Alexis, too. It, I have a feeling was. he will be incredibly fired up for that. Absolutely, even more so than usual. So I, I, I've got really mixed feelings about it. On one hand... I'm a little bit bored by it because, you know, I've seen us get knocked out by Barca a couple of times before and Bayern and, and it's all a bit a bit samey. But on the other hand, you know, if you want to win it, you've got to beat Barca anyway. Is This is precisely why we wanted to be in the Champions League instead of the Europa League because of, you know, the potential for ties like Barcelona. And when those games actually come up, I'm going to be so excited about both of them. I know I will. Um, and, you know short of getting absolutely walloped I think we can enjoy um, pretty much whatever happens um, and if like me you're like, and like a lot of people you're of the opinion that's very unlikely Arsenal are going to win the Champions League anyway then bollocks to it let's test ourselves against Barca let's see how good we actually are let's enjoy it and you know if we come up short which we more than likely will you know let's just kind of take our lumps and enjoy it because that's why you work so hard to qualify for competitions like this and that's why you work so hard, we work so hard to qualify from our group. So, yeah, having having had some time to reflect on it, I'm probably more upbeat than I was at kind of midday when the draw came out, and I thought, oh, for Christ's sake! But 
Um, there yeah. we go. Well, I, I mean, there's so many interesting plot lines there, too. There's Alexis against his former club. There's Hector Bellerin against his former club, per se. There's uh, Lauren Koscielny against his future club. <laughs> um, there's, you know, there, there's a lot of, of interesting plot lines there. And the thing that scares me about them is if, if Suarez, Messi, and Neymar are all fit, um, they can play poorly and still score two or three goals just yeah. because the individual brilliance of uh, that front line. I'm not sure I think they're you even can get it playing, though, Elliot. Ed Woodward really? has them all on his shopping list in January. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. You know, they, they have done so much study of advanced metrics that they've come up with the idea that Neymar, Suarez, or Messi would be, would be good signings. Uh, Paul, just really, really quickly, because I want to get to one final topic before we say goodbye. What is your expectation of that tie? I mean, I don't think any of us think we're, we're favorites to win it. We're certainly not. Um, give, give me your thoughts just on our chances there. Um. Uh, I don't know. I mean, who knows? Uh, I, I like Tim's angle. I'm going to go with that. That that excited me. I think that's right. I, they're terrified of Theo. I like to live in that. And mm-hmm. I, I think it'll be really, it, it could be really good. I mean, we could really have a go at them. Uh, it's hard to see us winning it over two ties. ties. The one, while I, uh, I take Tim's, point on the Champions League getting very samey. I think the problem is, le- now it is the same problem in the end, but I think the problem is less that you keep seeing the same ties and the same names in the round of 16 and the round of 8. It's that the same team keeps coming out of that. Um, I think it's exciting to see him see the big guys, the big, maybe the big 8, 10, 12 clubs in the last 16. It's good to see the names. The problem is the Buggers keep winning, and then when they match up against each other, the same ones keep winning. That's the real issue. So I've less of a problem with the round of 16 and kind of the round of eight. It's it's when you get to the final, you, you kind of know how the final four is going to play out, and then the final, and so. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, you realize, of course, and Tim, I'm sure sure you do that the same argument could be leveled at the domestic leagues where Barca win nine, uh, yeah. Bayern win nine out of ten. Yeah. Uh, uh, Bundesligas and Barca and Real win 19 out of 20 ligas and Chelsea City United win, you know, absolutely. 9 out of 10 absolutely. Premier Leagues. I, yeah. You know, La Liga interests me so little. I just can't, you know, I, you know, some of the league, some of the leagues and the competitions I really enjoy, um, you can spot a pattern. The Women's Super League um, has been decided on the last day four years in a row now. Um, you know, the, uh, you know, Brasileiro, um, the team that won it in 2012 went down in 2013. But, but now wait a minute, that's going to happen in the Premier League as well. <laughs> Let's hope so. Although they, 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 they wangled their way out of it on a legal challenge. So that would be very, uh, Fluminense, uh, wangled their way out of their relegation. I got news for you. That so. sounds very Abramovich-y too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And uh, the Libertadores and, and, you know, these, these competitions where any team can actually win it. I love those. I have no time for La Liga. I wouldn't watch it if it was in my garden. Um, and, and I completely take the point that the Premier League is a bit like that as well. I don't think quite to the same extent. But, yeah, yeah, it's, you know, it, it's all a bit like that. And were I a fan of a team outside the Premier League, I don't think I'd be remotely interested in the Premier League either. Yeah, um, hashtag against modern football. I mean, yeah, that's just what it boils yeah. down to. Um, Tim Stillman is going to be that grouchy guy who wouldn't give Messi his ball back because it came into his backyard. Well, to be fair, if the ball was in his backyard and they were playing La Liga in his garden, he really can't complain because... I wouldn't be watching, so I wouldn't know. No, you wouldn't even know. Uh, okay, hey, real quick. We've, we've got just a couple minutes left, and I want to finish on this. Uh, Tim, we'll stay with you for a second. If... If you had to rank the joys in your life, um, and and I, I realize you you relatively recently married, and you know I, I recently had had my first child, and Paul is getting to participate in this podcast, so we all have huge joys in our life. But if you had to rank I've got the joys in your life, to go. no, no, you really don't. Um, where does Chelsea's current debacle rank for you? Um. Yeah, pretty near the top, um, to be honest. It's it's fantastic entertainment. The great thing is, as well, is is um, I've been enjoying Mourinho's post-match interviews 
even more than the games and the great thing about them not just anything good from this one i missed it getting I've, ready for I've the pod literally i've literally just opened the page i haven't read it yet um i'm i'm like saving it for myself for like a treat before i go to bed because apparently <laughs> he's just thrown his whole team under a bus um and it's been great. oh i've got to read it <laughs> i think i know which bus that'd be <laughs> yeah, the one he, the one he parked in the... I, I think oh, this okay. one though he's attempting to reverse <laughs> and and back over Cess Fabregas. Um, so so let me ask you this: Who's suffering? Are you enjoying most? Costas, Fabregas's, Hazards, Matic's, Jose's. I mean, is Jose Jose's got to be right at the top? Uh, yeah, Jose's right at the top. The others, I'm. You know, it's a cocktail, really. It's like asking you. You know, it's like asking what's your favourite part of a of a mojito or a margarita. It's just you know, you've just got to kind of whisk it all around and. Uh, the anonymous sex after having too many of them? Is that not what you were going for? No. Swirl, it, swirl it around the palate and, and, and really, really enjoy it. Um, so, spit it back yeah. in the glass. Swallow it again. <laughs> swirl it around. Spit it back in the glass. Don't swallow it fully. And then, I've seen that video on the internet, and it's it's pretty graphic. And then um, serve it to Cesc Fabregas. But, but what I was going to say is I, I've really enjoyed trying to follow, like, um, Mourinho's thinking in his post-match interviews. So he's tried the throwing them under a bus. He's tried the rant. He's tried saying nothing. He's tried blaming the referee. He's tried blaming the physio. And it's great because he hasn't got a fucking clue what to do. And so he's just working through all of these things and none of them are working. And, and it's just a pleasure to watch. It is. And, you know, I think it, it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Um, but it, it really is... The watching them play, to me, it is so clear they are not playing for him yeah. that, you know, you really wonder if they don't make a change, could they go down? Because it's not that they're not good enough to stay up. They just do not give the slightest of fucks. Like, there are no fucks given on that team. Hazard hates him. Fabregas hates him. Costa hates him. Ramirez hates him. I mean, other than William, who still seems like he's vaguely interested, Matic looks like he's completely forgotten how to play football. Uh, Ivanovic, awful. Like, they're just, to a man, downing tools. And it is just a joy to watch. Paul, for you, um, how, how special is the Chelsea collapse? Well, I'll tell you what. You know what pisses me off? This is the man who said that Arsene Wenger would be fired if it were any other club, if he were any other manager. Well, fuck me. Any other manager at Chelsea would have been fucking taken out behind the yard and shot through the back of the head by Abramovich. So he's one lucky fucker he still has that job. The nerve of him for what he said. Wenger, in his getting on for 20 years now, has never brought a team anywhere remotely this low at this stage of the season. He's always had them in or around being a top four team or chasing the top four or uh, challenging for a title. So for all of Mourinho's uh, jibes at Wenger, he's done something to this club, which he always does in his third or fourth, fourth year, maybe not in every club he's been at sometimes he gets his timing right but you can only one he kind of takes his team apart psychologically and if he can get out in time fair enough if they if they can rescue it and bring in a new manager and a a new regime fair enough but if they miss that boat they're fucked The, the second piece of it is he builds nothing he's built nothing here And when he's in trouble and the answer is he needs to play football with his team, he can't do it. He can't put together attractive, exciting football anymore. Or maybe he has the ability, he just doesn't have the confidence anymore. So uh, uh, as he suffers, as he, like an ant under a magnifying glass, as he can't work out how to get under this thing, I hope this is a slow, slow, painful death. Yeah, it's clear that the longer he stays, the worse it's going to get. And uh, I recently had a text message chat with a friend of mine who was saying, you know, I hope he gets sacked because we want him out of there as quickly as possible in case he turns it around. And I I couldn't disagree more. I think there's no chance he turns this around. If they get a new manager, the talent is there for these guys to turn it around and play well. The longer he stays, the worse it's going to get. And it is an absolute delight. Not to mention, by the way, that, yeah, they're near the top. But Manchester United are kind of a dumpster fire, too. 
Um, and Van Gaal is an absolute crazy person. So very, very entertaining Premier League this season. Hopefully one that ends in the most entertaining of fashions. Chelsea going down, Arsenal winning the title. Um, and hey, the treble is still on. So there's that. I think we should leave it there. Ran a little longer than we wanted, but we had a lot of fun topics to get to. And it is thinking, thinking, thinking. Oh, yeah, Manchester City at home at the weekend. So we will come to you after that when we uh, emphatically stake our claim to be the the true contenders for the title, um, along with Lester. Tim, again, can be found on Twitter at Stilberto. Read all his stuff. It's fantastic. Tim, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. Yeah, and, and mine as well. And Paul, uh, he has nothing but time, but I appreciate him taking the time anyway. You, you can find him on Twitter. I have Posnan. a blog <laughs> this week. It's going to be called Theotron 9000. Look out for it. The Theo- Look out for it because it's going to be fantastic. It is. Uh, you can find Paul, who interrupted me during his promotion period, at Posnan in my pants. Um, and you can read his periodic blog, which apparently is going to make its semi bi sesquicentennial weekly appearance this week. Uh, my name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. And please, 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 please go on iTunes and leave us a review. Leave us a terrible review. Write the most scathing, horrible review, like the one that said Elliot should be punched in the fleshy patch where his genitals should be. Um, just leave us five stars when you're writing it, and then everybody wins, especially us. Uh, we appreciate you listening, though. Up the Arsenal, City at the weekend. We'll come to you after the game. Cheers. Talk to you then. Looking for a new podcast to listen to? Here's what we love, courtesy of ACAST Recommends. What's going on, everybody? This is Mac Wilds, one-third of the almighty guys next door. And if you're listening to this, we want you to be a neighbor. Now, I know you guys are probably thinking, like, what do these guys talk about? What is that? Well, listen, we talk about everything under the sun. We talk about everything that it means to be a young millennial man in today's society, whether it's finance, the type of condoms that you use, or how to deal with love issues, or lack of emotion. We talk about everything, and we go there. Guys, we go there. We really, really have a lot of fun. So uh, if you guys would love to, we would love you to come on over, come mosey on down, you know, right past Sesame Street. We want you guys to come, come kick it with us. Come get some sugar. We are the guys next door. Peace. A-Cast. 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 A-Cast.